If you would, turn in your Bibles to John 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. The scripture is also provided for you on page 11 of the worship guide. This is John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be, bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you may go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father, my, whatever you ask my Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on his word preached. Lord, we pray that you would work through your word to transform our hearts, even now this morning. Pray that your truth would be spoken and received here today. In your name we pray. Amen. I hate sports. At least I, I keep trying to tell myself that I hate sports, especially when the Cubs collapse at the end of the year and miss the playoffs. If you don't know, I'm a huge Cubs fan. But the reality is I love sports. But lately I've been really asking myself, why? Why do I love sports so much? Why do I love being a fan so much? I was thinking about it, and I, I think... That, that it's because I have this longing to be connected to something greater than myself. And that's what really drives me being a fan. 
When, when the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, I'm going to say that again. When the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, I was literally jumping up and down saying, we did it, we did it. I was so connected to the Cubs that their victory felt like my victory, even though I contributed absolutely nothing to it. I still said, we did it. As we look at John 15, we see that we're called to abide in Jesus, to be connected to him so that so much so that his work is our work and his fruit is our fruit. Now, last week we looked at John 14, 1 through 14, and, and the last point that I, that I talked about is that, that through the cross, Jesus is progressing the work of the Father. And, and as we look at John 15 today, I feel like it's almost an expansion on that point. Jesus here provides a picture for how the work of the Father is progressing after his death. And in in verse 1, Jesus says that he is the true vine. But in, in order for him to be the true vine, it implies that there was another vine that, that came before him that, that was not the true vine. And as we learned in our scripture reading that Buck read this morning from Isaiah 5, we see that the vine imagery was applied to Israel. Israel was the vine that God had planted, the vine that was planted to produce fruit, yet it only produced wild grapes. From its establishment through Abraham, Israel was was blessed to be a blessing. So that through them, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in Psalm 96, we see that they were called to declare the Lord's glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. Israel was never meant to, to exist just for itself. God planted and tended the vine in order that it would bear fruit and extend God's glory and reign throughout the world. Yet they failed this mission. They only produced wild grapes. But Jesus is saying that he is now the means through which this mission will be accomplished. He is telling us that that we get to be the branches through which he will produce fruit. Jesus is telling the disciples and us that we have this opportunity to participate in Jesus' work of being the true vine. Through which God's glory and reign will go out to all nations. In the metaphor of the vine This participation in Jesus' work of being the true vine is is what it looks like to bear fruit. That's bearing fruit. So we ask the question, how is it that we bear fruit? As we look at this passage, we want to look at how we must trust the vine dresser, how we must abide in Jesus, and how we must abide in Jesus' love. Let's first look at how we must trust and the vine dresser. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 1, 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. As the vine dresser, God does two things. He takes away branches that are not bearing fruit, and he prunes branches that are bearing fruit. There's much that can be said about his work and and what he is doing there. But rather than than focusing on the works themselves of of taking away and pruning, and and it does require us to trust in him and those things because that's hard and painful. But I want us to focus on the worker. Jesus is saying here that in the metaphor, God is the vine dresser who is working to make sure that the vine produces the maximum amount of fruit. The command that Jesus is giving here is not that we bear fruit. He's not saying bear fruit. He's saying abide in me. The the disciples are not directly responsible for fruit bearing or to bring about the maximum amount of fruit. It's, it's the lifeblood of the vine pumping through them, through their connection to it, that, that brings about fruit. It's our responsibility to make sure we're connected to that life-pumping blood of the vine. But it's God's work to take away and to prune and to guarantee the maximum amount of fruit. It requires trust. Back to a sports analogy, I think about how superstitious, how, how many superstitions are in sports. And, and it, it makes sense in some ways when, when athletes themselves are superstitious. We, we see things like Tiger Woods always wearing a red shirt on the last day of a tournament. Have you, if, if anybody's ever seen Nomar Garcia Perra, he's an old baseball player, Every, after every pitch, he would step out of the box and do this routine with his gloves. And he had this routine. It was like a superstition thing that he would do. And, and Serena Williams, she wears the same pair of socks during the entire tournament. They're lucky socks. But it gets a little more crazy when, when fans are so superstitious, right? One, one, one sports writer admitted to wearing one sock inside out an entire college basketball season to support his team. And of course, it was because of, he did this that, that, that his team made it to the Final Four that year. Or, or some fans insist on wearing the same pair of underwear every time their team plays. Or, or some pl- fans insist on sitting in their lucky chair when they're watching or, or, or some fans will watch in a certain way or not watch. I remember a, a couple of years ago, my dad calls me up and he says, yeah, I, I didn't watch the Cubs game because, you know, every time I turned it on, something bad happened. So I stopped watching. And I was, he's not even a Cubs fan. He's superstitious about it. And the, just like the superstition of, of sports fans, we, we act as like we're the ones in control. Whether we wear a lucky sock or sit in our lucky seat has no bearing of how our sports teams are doing. I hate to break the news to you there. But if we're not careful, we can actually begin to believe that the success or the failure of the mission of God in this world rests on our shoulders. We can believe that 
that we have to find just the right words to say to our friends or our family to convince them to place their faith in Jesus. We can begin to believe that it's up to us to bring about God's justice in a sin-filled world. In our churches, we can create programs or use gimmicks and rely on them to bring, to keep the church going or, or to bring people in the doors. Even me, as I'm writing this sermon and, and thinking about this word, I, I can fall into the temptation of beginning to believe that I have to figure out just the right words to say and, and, and make all the pieces fit together in order to have the maximum amount of impact. Man, that creates so much anxiety. It's on our shoulders. But Jesus is telling his disciples not to forget that God is the master gardener whose responsibility it is to make sure that the fruit is being produced. Our role and our responsibility is not to produce the fruit. If that's what we strive for, we, we end up just fruit stapling. I don't know if you've heard this metaphor, but we, we try to figure out what the fruit looks like, and we just we do whatever it, it, it takes to make it look like we're producing fruit. But that doesn't do, any, do us any good. If we're so focused on the fruit itself, we begin to fake it. But our responsibility, however, is to abide in Jesus. That is how we be, begin to produce fruit. Therefore, let us look at what Jesus says it looks like to abide in him. In order to bear fruit, we not only need to trust in the vine dresser, but we need to abide in Jesus. He says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is using the same language of mutual indwelling that he used between him and the Father in, in chapter 14, verse 11. Now he, he's pointing us to the mutual indwelling of us with himself. This is all possible because of what he talks about um, later in 14, the sending of the Holy Spirit. That's the means through which this is all possible. But Steve and Paul are going to come back and, and, and talk more about the Holy Spirit in the next two weeks. So I'm going to let them uh, talk more about that. Um, but this mutual indwelling, what we see here, this abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in us, it is the necessary condition of fruit bearing. We cannot bear fruit on our own. It is only through our abiding in Jesus that he bears fruit through us. So how are we then to abide? I think Jesus points to two things here. His word and prayer. In verse 7 we see that Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Abiding in Jesus is intricately, intricately connected with his word abiding in us. It is through his words that we know him and have relationship with him. 
In verse 15, he says, But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Only two people in the Old Testament were referred to as friends of God, Abraham and Moses. And it was their extraordinary access to the mind of God and his plans and purposes that made them friends of God. But God's saving plan has been fully revealed to the disciples, and it is fully revealed through his word, so much so that they no longer are called friend or servants, but friends. God's plan of salvation is right here, available to us. In order to abide in Jesus, we must know him. And we can know him through his word, through scripture. Not only are we, can, we, can we abide through his word, but also through prayer. Jesus continues in verse 7 saying, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He repeats a similar phrase in verse 16 when he says, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus is clearly pointing the disciples and us to the great power that prayer has. But more than that, well, he says he said, the great power of prayer, and prayer does have great power, and the power it has is to bring about the glorification of the Father, as we see in verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified. But Jesus is also saying that it's through prayer that we are able to abide. In verse 7, our prayers are based on his word abiding in us. In verse 16, our prayers are to be prayed in his name. Prayer here is not just a, a tool for us to use to bring about whatever it is that we wish or, or whatever we ask for. Rather, prayer is a means in which our wills are conformed into his will. So that when we ask, or whatever we ask, will be asked according to his name, according to his will. This makes me think, I was, I was watching a, a TV show, um, and there was a scene where uh, one of the characters was, was really nervous about going on a, on a first date, and he kind of figured out some of the uh, previous people that had this, this girl had dated and he was thinking, oh, I just got to be kind of like them. And, and maybe she'll like me if I'm, I'm like some of these other people that she had dated. So uh, he goes on this date and, and he tries to act like something he wasn't. And he, he goes and he dresses up like he had just been at the gym. And, and he, he's uh, saying, yeah, I just came from the gym. I'm a, I'm a huge gym rat. And I... I spent all this time in the gym. And she asked him a question. She's like, oh, what, what, what kind of workouts do you do? He's like, well, uh, yeah, um, uh, Pilates uh, for my core. Uh, I do finger push-ups. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it was just so extremely clear that he knew nothing about what it looked like to be a gym rat. 
So he, he was trying to act like he was, was something that he wasn't. He didn't know anything about it. And I, I think we, we can do that sometimes. We can try to act like we are abiding in Jesus. But if we don't know anything about it, that gets revealed pretty quickly. <clears throat> but to extend the, the metaphor a little bit here, when we move in with, when we, when we get into a relationship and we continue to get to know somebody and, and, and we get married and we move in with someone, that, that moving in with someone is, is sharing this great intimacy with them. And, and Jesus is, is calling us to abide in him. I love the word abide because it makes me think of this idea to make a home or, or an abode with someone. It's like he's asking us to move in with them so we can get to know each other on a deep, intimate level. If we're to get to know Jesus on an intimate level, we have to spend time in his word and in prayer. God has revealed himself to us through his word. How can we know him if we don't spend time reading and studying scripture? Sure, we can experience his love for us as we live out our lives, but we can't truly understand that love unless we read the story of how his love has been unfolded for us from the beginning until now. I want to encourage you, if, if you are here today and you don't really know that love, and you aren't truly abiding in Jesus, I want to encourage you to really dig into his word and see how his love has been poured out on us through all time. But it's, it's not. So we experience his love through studying scripture. But prayer is also a means through which we can share a deeper intimacy with Jesus. And it's not that, that our prayers are, are sharing ourselves in such a way that enables him to get to know us better because he already knows us better than we even know ourselves. But, but I think that, that spending in time in prayer is still a way that we can be open and honest with him. And we can actually begin prayer can actually begin to help us when, when we open ourselves up in such a way to begin to help us know ourselves better. Through prayer, we can begin to express our own heart in, in ways that helps us to begin to realize when our wills are not in accord with his will. When Jesus taught us to pray, he started with, Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Let your name be praised. And your kingdom come, your will be done. When we, when we pray such things, the Holy Spirit uses those words to shape our hearts, to, to be, begin to shape our desires, that we want those things to come about. That we want to see his will be done. And we want to see his kingdom come. To be honest, I often struggle with setting time aside 
and each and every day just to read Scripture and to pray. I think for me, oftentimes it's because I make it into a chore, something I know I'm supposed to do in order to be a good Christian. But when I read passages like this, it helps me to realize that reading Scripture and prayer, it's not a chore. It's a means that we can grow in our intimacy with Jesus. It's a means through which we can abide in him. But Jesus not only tells us that we must trust in the vine dresser and abide in Jesus, but we also must abide in Jesus' love. In verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus points out how great a love he has loved them with. It is the, the, the love that he loves us with is the same love in which the Father has loved him. And he expands on this in verse 13 when he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is about to do that very thing for them on the cross. It's through abiding in the great love that has been poured out on us that we are then commanded to pour out that same love on one another. Verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And John says this in a different way. In 1 John 4, 19, he says, We love because he first loved us. Our obedience here, our obedience to God is not a chore. It's, it's, it's a response to his great love for us. Our our obedience to God is nowhere a condition in which we earn God's love. Rather, it is our response to how God has loved us. David viewed the law not as a burden, but a great blessing. When he writes in Psalm 19, he says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. He longed for God's word. He longed for his commandments. It makes me think, you know, Sarah's not uh, able to be here this morning because our son is sick, so I think I can say this without getting into too much trouble. Um, but it, it just makes me think about how sometimes when she would uh, go out and maybe she was going out for something, maybe just running errands or doing something, uh, and, and I was left al- alone at home, a lot of times she would ask me, hey, could, could you do the dishes? Or hey, could you fold the laundry? Or hey, could you do this for me? And, and I remember <laughs> oftentimes I would get so self-absorbed and so just all about myself. I I wanted to sit. I wanted to relax. I'd been working a lot, and I I just needed some time. I needed some me time. I would actually get upset with her for asking me just for a little bit of help while she was gone. And I I would see it as, 
sometimes I'd even get defensive about it. Like, oh, I don't do enough for him. You know, like, it was just ridiculous. And it's because of the way I was seeing it. I was seeing it as a chore. I was seeing it completely wrong. Here she is giving me an opportunity to see a way that I can love her well. But instead of seeing this as as a as a opportunity, I saw it as a burden. And God's law, He is showing us how we can love Him. It is not to be a burden, it's to be a great blessing to us. Jesus continues by saying, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be complete in you, and that your joy may be full. See, obedience here is not a means through which, it's not only a means through which we experience great joy, it's also a means through which God brings about fruitfulness. We, we get to participate in the mission of the true vine. That, that brings us great joy. In this context, obedience is expressed through our love for one another. He says in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is not meant to be an exclusion of our love for our enemies or for non-Christians, but Jesus here is, is talking to the disciples and expressing that you can show forth my love to the world through your love for one another. Through our love for one another, we can have an opportunity to put God's love on display to the watching world. I think the early church understood this. The early church was no means perfect, but the one thing that they seemed to do very well was to love one another. And I think that this is a large part of why, why they were so successful they loved one another well. In Acts 2, 46 and 47, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. I think we see here how loving one another produces great fruit. The question becomes, how do we begin to love one another better? We can love one another through things like taking meals to new moms or, or those who are sick. We can love one another through helping one another with needs, whether it be financial or uh, using resources to help someone find a job or when they're out of work or, or things like helping with a home repair or, or, or raking leaves, all sorts of things that we can do to love one another. But all of these things are, are good, great even, but I think it has to go beyond that. It requires investing time developing true gospel-centered community within the church. Again, let me say, that, that takes investing time making, spending time in this community a priority in your lives. I think it's, it's sharing our lives with one another 
and going beyond just surface relationships. Sharing both our struggles and our blessings so that we can be supported and encourage one another. You know, I, I think that um, in some ways I'm kind of plugging small groups here. <laughs> the small groups can be a wonderful opportunity that we can have these close relationships with one another, that we can go beyond the surface in a, in a smaller group. If you're not involved in a small group, I would encourage you uh, to seek that out. It's a way that we can get to know each other on a more intimate level. But again, I think it, it's, it's more than that. I, I think it also requires forgiveness. The church is full of broken and hurt people. Sometimes we forget that. When we forget that, that people in the church are held up to an expectation that they can't meet. It can make us less willing to forgive. It can make us less willing to come alongside of those who are struggling with sin and reminding them of the love of Jesus. I mean, what, what would happen if a, a teenage girl in our church becomes pregnant? How do we react to such a thing? What would happen if someone confesses their, their struggle with sexual immorality and struggle with pornography amongst us? What would happen when, when our sins become exposed? How do we react to such things? I think so often in the church we, we can begin to look so much with judgment and, and expect them to those people to not be struggling with sin that we hurt people I know so many people who say that they've been burned by the church I think it's because we struggle to forgive one another recognizing that we're all in need of the forgiveness of Jesus and we have received that love and we can pour it out on others but loving in these ways is hard it opens us up to vulnerability. It requires great sacrifice. And I think Jesus is telling his disciples that this kind of love is also very attractive to the outside world. And through loving one another, we can bear much fruit. And when I was in seminary, one of my professors, Dr. Douglas, used to always give this illustration when it came to union with Christ. That's really what we're talking about, abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in us. It's our union with Christ. And he, it's such a beautiful picture. It's about this man named Rick Hoyt who, who competed in more races than I could ever even imagine running in. He, he, ran, or he was, competed in 257 triathlons. He did six Ironmans. 72 marathons, including the Boston Marathon, 32 times, and many more half marathons and 5Ks and other races. Yet Rick is different from any other racer that you might meet. Rick has cerebral palsy and is mostly paralyzed. So how in the world does he compete in these races? Well, his father, Richard, pushes him 
and drives him on a bike and, and, and pulls him in the water in a raft the entire way. Rick is completely unable to run the race on his own, yet he gets to participate because his dad loves him so much that he runs for him. So much so that the dad says, to me, he is the one competing. I'm just loaning him my arms and my legs so that he can compete. And even though he isn't actually doing the running, Rick takes so much joy in the fact that he gets to participate in these races. So much so that he told his dad, Dad, when I am running, it feels like my disability disappears. This story is such a beautiful picture for what it looks like for us to participate in God's mission here on earth. Jesus is the true vine. He is the one at work in and through us. And he is one bringing forth much fruit. Yet when we trust in the vine dresser, when we abide in Jesus and abide in his love, we get this amazing opportunity to participate in the race. It's almost like we're the ones competing. He's just loaning us his arms and legs so that we can compete. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you allow us to participate in your mission to the world. I thank you that you run the race for us. I pray that you would help us to abide in you, to trust in your work, and to love one another well so that we can see the fruit of your work. In your name we pray, amen.